I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. Regular listeners to our podcast know there are some recurring topics and themes that come up all the time. There's the full array of important issues in commercial real estate, of course. And I also love to sneak in references to food and music and other fun stuff. On a more serious note, though, the wisdom of cutting-edge thought leaders is something that informs all our conversations. On this episode, I get the chance to sit down with one of those powerfully influential thinkers to hear some of his truly thought-provoking perspectives. I set out to answer this one question. If the world population is going to peak at around 9 billion people over the next 20 to 30 years, where, literally where, will we be? That's none other than Dr. Parag Khanna, the founder of FutureMap, a data-driven strategic advisory firm based in Singapore and a best-selling author who writes about technology, business, and culture in an interconnected world. Parag has been named one of Esquire's 75 most influential people of the 21st century and has been featured in Wired Magazine's Smart List. His latest book, Move, The Forces Uprooting Us, and his other works are a true source of wisdom and inspiration. In a conversation we recorded at the CBRE Institute's recent gathering in Arizona, Parag and I got into some of his biggest and most thought-provoking ideas on demographics, the state of democracy, data, and the concept of digital nomads. We talk climate and economics, technology, markets, and more. It's a very in-depth back and forth in which we also delved into a question that will make anyone think, have we reached, as Parag suggests in his latest book, a point of, quote, peak humanity? Coming up, my face-to-face with best-selling author Parag Khanna. That's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take, and this week we are recording from Scottsdale, Arizona, and we are privileged to have with us Dr. Parag Khanna, literally one of the world's great futurists. Parag, thanks for joining. Thank you, Spencer. Great to be with you. Awesome. Well, one of the books you just wrote, which I read in anticipation of today's interview, was Move, The Forces Uprooting Us. Why don't you give us the central thesis of the book? Sure. I take two megatrends, which is demographic decline, meaning the plateau in the world population, and climate change, among other factors, but those predominantly. And I try to use those as a lens to forecast the human geography of the next 10, 20, 30 years. In other words, I set out to answer this one question. If the world population is going to peak at around 9 billion people over the next 20 to 30 years, where, literally where, will we be? How did we get there? And who are the people? You know, the young people of today are the mature adults of tomorrow. Who are they? What are their values, preferences? What are they doing? And and why? Well, there's so much to unpack there, Parag, but one of the things I find fascinating is that the forecast of future human population is declining. Right. We may be at peak people or may soon be at peak people. Tell us about that. Right. So peak humanity is not a term that people are familiar with. It's uh, one of the terms or phrases that I coin in the book, but it's not my idea that the world is uh, rapidly reaching its uh, demographic plateau. There have been a number of books that have alerted me to this trend, and even they, to some degree, have understated the case. 
because they were written before COVID. And I wrote this book before COVID, but I had the benefit of using COVID to update some of the forecasts. Now, if you're familiar with the term baby bust, you heard it during COVID, but you also heard it 10 years ago after the financial crisis. So what's really happening to the world population is that we've had two baby busts back to back in a really short period of time. That's bad, Spencer. It's really, really bad in terms of the number of our species. Now, it's good if you think that more people causes more problems and climate change and so forth, yes. But you also want to, to some degree, manage or control, engineer, if you will, the correct balance across generations. And we're losing that right now because we have a lot of old people, a lot of young people, but very few young people coming after today's young people. So it is something that I grapple with. It's not just our number. At the end of the day, whether it's 8 billion, 8.5 billion, 9 billion, 10 billion, it's not a whatever thing, but it's about the distribution. Again, that's why I write about human geography, because the fact is that, sure, Nigeria and India feel overpopulated, but Russia and Canada and Germany don't feel overpopulated. So the distribution and the generational balance is what matters for economic health and fiscal health. And that is what I'm trying to correct through advocating for a more rational human geography than what we have today. Well, I think one of the mathematical elements that I presume you're thinking about is something like Social Security. I think most people who pay into Social Security believe they write their check every month and I'm entitled to Social Security, and and maybe they are. But you're not paying for your Social Security. It's the next generation. So how do we pay for social benefits in a world where there is this disproportionate number of older folks versus younger folks? You know, you raise taxes, you bring down the cost of those benefits, of delivering the benefits, you shrink what the benefits are themselves. All of this financial engineering is going on, fiscal engineering is going on right now in every developed country in the world. Um, Obviously, pension benefits, the retirement age, you know, this is the stuff of uh, daily news or electoral cycles in terms of the reforms that are underway. But, um, you know, fundamentally, it's probably uh, an intergenerational issue of what is the new social contract, because you don't necessarily have an agreement on what the priorities of spending should be right now versus in the future. Older people tend to not want to spend as much on infrastructure versus healthcare because they benefit from the healthcare and they don't use as much infrastructure. Younger people want to see more investment in infrastructure and aren't as concerned about healthcare because they're not drawing upon that. So it's not just a static picture of what constitutes the welfare state and those benefits, and it's the same thing generation after generation after generation, and it's just a matter of finding enough money. There's a debate about what we're even spending on, who is doing the spending, and what for, and what is the best agent of delivery of that so-called welfare, and whether we should even have it in the volume that we used to have it, and at what age you should have it. So everything is open to debate right now when it comes to the welfare state. And why? Well, because it's about money, and we're fighting about trillions and trillions of dollars, and therefore the definition of what is the public good is no longer sacred. What's interesting about the way you answered that question, I heard in your answer the words why and what 
several times. I did not hear the word where, even though that's the central tenet of your book. Because one of the great things in your book, you showed that over the last 50, 60 years, there's been a disproportionate number of people in America moving out of the Northeast and Midwest, disproportionate number of people moving into the South and Southwest. But those are the places that are most stressed by the climate right now. So if you had to spend your infrastructure dollars, do you spend it in high-growing cities in Texas, Florida, in Arizona, where we're sitting today? Or do you look further out and put them into some Midwest cities in Michigan or in Illinois? And the answer, unfortunately, is it's driven by the market right now, whether it is the residential market, the real estate property market, or you might even call it the political marketplace for lobbying and funding of various projects that can be social infrastructure in nature. So we don't have a rational, top-down, master-planned kind of system in America where you say, and this is, of course, what I advocate for, but we don't have right now what I'm advocating for. What I'm advocating for is that you think about climate change and climate models and what it's doing to the cost of building and maintaining assets in certain geographies, and you do a cost-benefit analysis about spending, um, you know, if you take the example that I've looked at recently, the cost of rehabilitating Louisiana's electricity grid after each successive hurricane keeps going up, but its ability to withstand the next hurricane goes down while the population of Louisiana is in secular decline. So should Louisiana or coastal Louisiana receive the same amount of federal funding as other places where the population may be growing that are more climate resilient? Probably not. Is that fair based upon our present political structure and administrative geography? No, not at all. But guess what? Climate change doesn't care about international borders. It certainly doesn't care about state lines in America. So as a taxpayer, what I'm interested in is seeing what are the climate resilient zones that are the lowest cost to build in that can sustain sustainably sustain larger populations. And those are the places that I would like to see receive more investment and have more people move into those places. And it will cost less in the future to maintain our infrastructure and to provide services to those people because they're in places where you have, for example, abundant solar power, right, rainfall, um, and other kinds of uh, public goods, if you will. So again, that's not the way America is run right now. But I'll tell you what, I'm an optimist. We're actually getting closer to this. I'm, Spencer, I know you follow this. What is FEMA, HUD, Army Corps of Engineers, what are they all saying? They're saying eminent domain in these coastal areas, right? Very rigorous flood scoring, revision of the flood score for all counties of America. Um, And all of these incentives, nudges, right, as we like to call it in behavioral economics, nudges to get people away from climate-stressed areas. And so I think that we're doing the right thing. Other countries do this already, of course, and we're going to get on that bandwagon. Again, because not only is it the right thing to do for your own survival, but it's fiscally the smart thing to do as well. What I agree with you about, and I think most people would agree with, is is the apolitical distribution of infrastructure capital, right? It should not be, quote-unquote, pork barrel spending. It should not go where there's greatest political power. I think that's pretty non-controversial. But there were some elements of your book and what you just said that I find pretty controversial, and that is the losing of democracy in exchange for a higher uh, authority that would make these decisions. Mm -hmm. And so how do you respond to that? There are no intergovernmental organizations in the climate arena that 
can supersede national sovereignty on matters of fiscal spending or immigration. So that's not a point that I made. So you and I are in total agreement on that one. Domestically, I don't think my argument is anti-democratic either, because if you look at governors, governors are absolutely front and center in saying we need a lot more cross-state cooperation on our watersheds, transboundary water management, on our infrastructure and roads, on our kind of regional climate resilience spending. All of this stuff is by democratically elected governors and mayors. Ever since my very first book, I've celebrated the importance of governors who realize how arbitrary their boundaries are between their states and work together in democratic fashion. So this is quite pro-democracy. I am for individuals making the choice as to where they live. But what I'm saying is that the private market should actually use this data around livable and non-livable geographies to help provide that low-cost housing in climate-resilient areas where you have renewable energy and therefore you're not paying as much in your utility bill for a failing grid, what's undemocratic about giving people the choice to go and live in more you know, resilient geographies? Well, what's interesting is I think there's probably more agreement between you and me than uh, perhaps I thought in, to begin with. But I'm now turning to page 64 of uh-huh. your book. Uh, which is a chart which shows the, quote, the best form of government. And I wrote a little note next to it that said terrifying. terrifying. And and the reason why I said terrifying is because your chart in your book says the people that like democracy are uh, the interwar generation, baby boomers, Gen Xers, my generation, I presume our generation. Our generation. uh, And then millennials, it falls off the planet, and I'm sure it's worse after that. Isn't that something we should be concerned about? about Note to listeners, uh, Spencer has scrawled the word terrifying in the marginalia here. (laughs) So um, now let's be clear. This is not my voice. This is a very authoritative survey, of which there's many done by Ipsos, Pew, and others. And those surveys that have been done, conducted, by the way, across North America and Europe, covering 20 countries, surveys of Gen X, Millennials, and even Gen Z now, you can expand it to them, Mm -hmm. show a declining degree of satisfaction with the conduct of their government and even, in principle, somewhat greater dissatisfaction with democracy itself because they identify their own societies as underperforming democracies. That is a reflection of those surveys. Whether or not it's my opinion is utterly irrelevant, right? But I can very much sympathize with young people who have grown up in a world where the defining events that they can remember are, first of all, not the fall of the Berlin Wall, because only you and I are old enough to remember that, Mm -hmm. uh, because millennials are not. So the defining events of their lives are the invasion, uh, or the 9-11 terrorist attack, so a direct attack on their homeland after hundreds of years of, you know, sanctity, other than, of course, the attack on Pearl Harbor. the financial crisis, political polarization, the election of Donald Trump, culture wars, and so forth. So if you have grown up as a millennial or Gen Z, and this is the America you know, we have to pause for a minute and sympathize that they don't remember Cold War triumphalism the way you and I do. What is important is that it's incumbent on us to reflect on why our democracy is performed so badly that young people who are supposed to have grown up in a world of hope don't feel it. That's the real problem here. Not that they're upset. 
<laughs> well, the hopelessness, and that hopelessness is probably too strong a word. I don't right. think young people are hopeless. I no. think they may have less hope right. than uh, perhaps we do. In fact, by the way, I think you and I agree, they're incredibly resilient. Mm -hmm. right? and, that, and that's, that's yeah. a hopeful thing. Yeah. But uh, there are several uh, central tenets to your book on why mobility is the future. And, I, and your last quote in today's presentation was that mobility is destiny. Indeed. And that some of these tenets to that mobility isn't just being forced to move due to climate change. It's also a different conception of what a good life looks yes. like. Getting married, having kids is part of it. That's the personal side. But the professional side is, uh, and I'm going to, again, quoting from your book, a career for a Gen Zer is nothing more than an assemblage of gigs and fees. And then I wrote something in the margin, which we can't say on air. Uh, but nevertheless, to say I disagreed with what you were saying. So do you really believe that this is what the future of work looks like? I'm not saying that aspirationally, because mm -hmm. that is obviously a fairly despondent view. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the percentage of the youth labor force that is forced to survive, if you will, on this assemblage of gigs, that's just a factual matter. It's not a desirable state of affairs that they are in, but it is the state of affairs that they are in. And that even applies in countries where you have more regulated labor markets, like in Europe and so forth. So I find that lamentable, but the solution to it is not to uh, argue whether it's good or bad, because you and I probably agree it's not good, and I'm certainly not describing it as good, but what are we doing about it? Where are full-time jobs with benefits and worker protections being created? And if you are a society that's going to attract young people, you need to be one of those places. That's the beginning and, and end of it. So, again, I don't support that I don't think that's a good reality, but it is reality. It's not reality for everyone, by the way. This kind of data changes annually. You can suddenly have a surge in new job creation, right, on the back of economic growth, fiscal stimulus, whatever the case may be, and those can be full-time jobs. And we've actually seen it in the U.S. during just in the wake of COVID. But you also can't treat that like it's a permanent trend because that might also be a blip and we might go back to, uh, you know, gigonomy models. So you can't say that all the new jobs are full-time jobs and it's all hunky-dory. And I can't say, no, it's all BS gigonomy work that sucks and is exploitative. Mm -hmm. It's both at the same time and it's a balance between the two. But I, I think we can agree that the good society is the one where young people can have a career path, meaning a stable job, commensurate to their skills, that provides them an adequate quality of life, and that that's something we should be trying to do more. Farag, you're here today in Scottsdale, Arizona, and you just stood in front of an audience of the largest corporate occupiers in the world. To a person in that room, every one of them is either saying they're going to be a carbon-neutral pledge by 2030, 2040, sometime after that. They've all embraced ESG. So let's assume for a moment that they're right, that they actually pull that off. Mm -hmm. How does that change your outlook for the future if we actually can come up with some kind of climate remediation plan? So there's a difference between climate risk mitigation and climate adaptation. What you're describing is mitigation, and that's very important. 90-plus percent of all investment, public and private, in, related to climate change action today 
is in mitigation, which is to say green buildings, right? Decarbonization of our assets, greening our supply chains and uh, infrastructure and so forth. That will eventually reduce emissions to the extent that reducing building emissions in America or globally is an important tool of reducing emissions. And it is. And of course, the built environment, the real estate sector are a significant double digit contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. So I applaud all of them and I hope they do it yesterday. But I have some bad news. That's not going to make a huge dent. It's not going to fully offset the emissions being generated by the other 80% of the economic sectors that continue to produce greenhouse gas uh, output. So it could be agriculture, oil and gas, energy, mining, transportation, you name it, right? Secondly, we have been pretty far off the mark in underestimating the extent of climate change. Now, you and I have the benefit of having seen this morning's news. The IPCC report just came out, the latest one. It's a pretty, pretty dire picture around the RCP, the representative concentration pathway scenario, and uh, likely temperature rise globally. We're headed towards a two-degree rise. And you can green all the buildings you want. And again, I don't want to be on this podcast that's going to be listened to by your clients and tell them not to do it. Of course they should do it. But can I just say something as a sort of someone trained in geography, right? A green building in a coastal area is still in trouble from sea level rise and tropical storms and so forth. So what I focus on, because I believe that mitigation is happening in all the right ways, but I believe, and this is the gist of my argument, we're not putting nearly enough resources into adaptation. Again, you can have lots of green buildings in Miami. You might still need to move a little bit back from the coastline, right? That's adaptation. We put 5% of our total public and private resources around combating climate change into adaptation, like seawalls, relocation, new settlements, all these kinds of things, right? 5%. Do you think it could be a little bit more? I think it could be a little bit higher, given that we are on a pretty irreversible pathway here. So adaptation shouldn't be controversial because it's about our survival. Therefore, it's pretty important. And uh, I advocate just a greater balance, basically, between mitigation and adaptation. So in other words, the best climate resilience is new geography, right? Shifting towards resilient, stable geographies, of which we have plenty. I say, look, here is the central challenge of human geography. We have 150 million square kilometers of terrain on the planet. About 100 million square kilometers of that is perfectly habitable, and will probably continue to be despite climate change scenarios. And we have only eight going on nine billion people max, right? So you decide where do you put your people, where do you build your towns, where do you build your offices, and optimize that geography in light of obstacles like obviously political boundaries and financial pressures and so forth. And that's the challenge that we need to answer. And the answer is as much adaptation as mitigation, if not more adaptation. I think it's about balance. Going back to the demographic argument we were making earlier about younger folks uh, wanting to be more mobile, not being as interested in uh, democracy because it's left them down, uh, you used a concept today that I had not heard before. It was called digital nomads. 
and nomad visas that uh, are being utilized now by young folks. See, we're Gen X. That's the problem, right? See? (laughs) We're not cool enough. You know, Gen X, we don't ever get any love on these shows. In fact, I didn't even get that much love in your book, and you're Uh, Gen Xer. I'm glad you at least created this show for us to commiserate. Thank God. This is now the Gen X, we're still cool hour. So let's go into this concept of... uh, Nomad visas, digital nomads, what does it mean and what does it mean for the movement of people? Okay, so there's like a tactical and a strategic kind of insight here. The tactical is, wow, look at these countries that have said, hey, we want to attract young people. There's lots of remote work going on. Why not? You know, we have nothing to lose by experimenting a little bit and uh, deregulating our visa applications and getting some young people in and staying in our you know, hotels and eating in our coffee shops and bring in some money, right? That, that's the kind of superficial tactical view of it. The strategic view links back to the really big picture demographic realities. And this is one area where COVID has definitely been a wake-up call because suddenly what happened when travel stopped and tourism stopped and all of the business conferences and mice industry dried up instantly, we realized what happens when people are gone. You really miss them. And as services economies, you can't survive without people. You need that footfall, right? You need that traffic from the airport and the train station to the hotels and the coffee shops and the restaurants. You need those people. Our economies are 60 to 70 to 80% services economies. So what really happened is something much deeper than just, oh, yeah, I'll make my visa processing a little bit faster. What happened is countries woke up and realized they need people. And it's a depopulating world in which they've realized they need more people. So when I think about the nomad visa in this broader context, I think of it as nothing less than a symbol of the global war for young talent. It's a world with four plus five or five billion young people and all of the well-built, you know, uh, uh, habitable, um, wealthy OECD countries of the world are running low on people. And this is why this nomad visa thing has really taken off. Not just an opportunistic COVID thing, but a long-term salvo in the war for talent. And you said there were something like zero of them a few years ago, and there's 75. Give me an example of a few countries. At most, people had heard of Estonia. Right, the mm-hmm. digital republic, you know, uh, you know, get your. Uh, they were even offering what they call digital citizenship and this kind of thing, where a USB key gives you access to banking services and other kinds of things. Again, now I'm in 75 countries overnight. Exactly when we were talking about xenophobia, protectionism, walls, borders, cultural suspicion over COVID, and you know, transmission of COVID and this kind of thing, while we were conservatively posturing about a world that was completely breaking down, half the countries in the world said, please, please come to my country. And that didn't get reported. So as an analyst, I'm offended by the oversight because it actually points to the much more positive, deep trend around countries realizing that they have to attract young people. And that being a really positive story because then it becomes a race to the top. Right, Because that whole dissatisfaction with democracy thing plays in here. Because no one forces you to move to those countries. You go there because they're offering the best package. Good governance, affordable housing, education opportunities, subsidies for your tech startup, um, a liberal lifestyle and culture. Guess what? Those satisfaction numbers are going to turn around in those places that are redefining their models to cater to those young people. Well, we talk about how young people and the attraction of talented young people, 
um, is the key to any country's future success. But I've read, and I'm trying to recall who the author was. It might have been Thomas Friedman who was talking about having too many young people and not enough opportunity actually creates risk rather than opportunity. And so what you're suggesting is those same young people that may be a risk factor in countries that don't have the institutions to give them the opportunities to proceed, uh, if they move to someplace else, they then, with the institutional stability, are then able to grow that new destination place. Is that what you're saying? Well, that's the classic brain drain argument and phenomenon that obviously has been happening for at least a century, you know, with very positive effects in terms of the redistribution of wealth creation by diasporas to their home countries. But both can be true at the same time. Countries that are losing people can still be unstable. Look at Egypt, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you've got, uh, it's the most populous Arab country. People are moving away, but still it's not totally politically stable. Look at Mexico, right? Uh, you know, you've had, um, even though net inward, outward migration is relatively stable between the U.S. and Mexico, it's still not exactly a thriving first world uh, democracy, right? But on balance, young people are going to leave countries that are underperforming and look for opportunity and jobs in places that are doing better. Again, that's the story of the post-World War II uh, labor migrations of Latinos and Asians to America, Turks and other post-colonial populations to Europe. It's been happening. It's been working well. But when a country is losing its young people and is not producing the next generation, obviously it's going to be in an economic tailspin, right? Canada is maybe the best real-world example of this. Canada is not only um, attracting ever more migrants, but it's creating full-time employment for them and keeping unemployment low and diversifying its economy all at the same time. Well, there was an interesting argument, and I'm looking for it now in your book, about GDP itself. And I think the quote was, either you believe it or you don't. And I'm having more arguments or discussions now with economists and others that some people don't believe GDP is the correct metric anymore. And in your book, you actually used a few different metrics about the sustainability of a country. Um, I'd like you to talk about those metrics and why those might be a better metric of the future of a country versus GDP growth. And then I'll say one other thing. I had a debate the other day uh, with another economist that, you know, we should give up on GDP and just look at standard of living. And Japan may have no GDP growth, but boy, do they have a high standard of living. So I'd love to hear about the new metrics and what you think about GDP versus standard of living. I would fall into that progressive camp, if you will, that says that purchasing power parity, quality of life indices, these kinds of things are certainly far more revealing and that you should be looking at the median, obviously, uh, individual over the mean uh, for sure. And when you sort of re-rank the world according to those metrics, the places with the highest GDP may not always be the places uh, with the best, highest standard of living. So America would come down quite a few notches um, if you were to do this. And I'm sympathetic to that because I've lived in places that may not be as wealthy per capita uh, as the U.S. Indeed, most European countries aren't other than like the Nordics. But the quality of life is, by most people's, again, day-to-day experience, probably better, 
right, in terms of their overall, their life expectancy is higher, uh, average educational attainment is now higher, public safety, law and order, these things are considered better, all of these kinds of, you know, again, prosaic, mundane variables that we should be looking at when we're thinking about the median person. Now, if you want to recreate an entire sort of table, there's many, many approaches, there's entire international efforts amongst economists and officials to create a new index, but I want to bring in the environmental factor, I think this is key. Then there's the Sustainable Development Index, which does take all of this into account. And what's interesting about its findings is that the countries that have the lowest per capita emissions footprint, but still have a high standard of living, meaning quality of life, nutritional level, low child mortality, high life expectancy, good education, right? Those places are places like uh, Panama and Costa Rica, Sri Lanka and Albania and Thailand, you know, places that are not Norway, right? But literally in a per capita sense, you know, in Albania, they're obviously not pumping all that oil that Norway is, right? And they're not uh, buying those fancy T-shirts made in China. You can live a good life in Albania uh, and not be destroying the planet. So there are these countries that are kind of like upper middle income or, or middle income countries with a low environmental footprint. Now, I'm not advocating for one or the other, right? But I am saying that if you believe that reckless global consumerist materialism on, a, on an aggregate basis is, is part of, quote unquote, destroying you know, the world, then you do need to seek some inspiration in countries that have um, a more, you know, sort of humble, modest, less consumerist approach to their economies and still have a decent quality of life. Well, um, I have been having a debate recently with one of my colleagues um, over in Asia, Henry Chin, who runs our Asian uh, research desk. Um, he's terrific. And we've been debating the, uh, the plus one future. Right, the China plus one, and it's how a lot of people put it in terms of where goods are manufactured. And he has been advocating for the VIP countries, for Vietnam, Indonesia, and the Philippines. I, of course, uh, as the American, argue for the Big Mac, Mexico, America, and Canada. And I remember in one of your prior books, uh, you talked specifically about how the world was going to become more regional right. and less global. Uh, do you still believe that? And Absolutely. if you had to put your money in the VIP or the Big Mac, where's it going? Oh, it's both. You and Henry, is it? Are, are Henry both, Jin. Yeah, yeah, you're both 100% spot on. So in, in the future is Asian, I wrote about what I call the fourth wave of Asian economies, and it's specifically South and Southeast Asia, which is a contiguous set of very young states from Pakistan through India, Bangladesh, including Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, so again, his VIP countries, are already prospering on the back of very significant gains in foreign direct investment, not just that which has been diverted from China in the sense of China plus one, but in and of themselves as large and growing consumer markets. So I'm obviously very bullish on this fourth wave set of countries. I, I live in one of them. You know, I voluntarily moved there and I've been experiencing that story. So the VIP countries that are the fourth wave Asian economies are huge winners from A, Trump's trade tariffs, B, their own demographics, C, anti-China pressure, desire to diversify supply chains, their lower wages, and so forth. So all of that is happening, which contributes to the regionalism within Asia, because trade within Asia is, is greater, significantly greater than trade between Asians and non-Asians. In other words, Asia is becoming self-sufficient. 
North America is already by far the most autarkic region of the world, and that's also something to be celebrated. And that goes back quite a ways, I mean, to, you know, NAFTA, obviously, and post-NAFTA now into the USMCA agreement, which is the Big Mac, if you will. And the USMCA trade agreement, it really builds on what was happening due to the shale energy revolution and Trump's tariffs and desire for industrial policy and nearshoring accelerated by COVID. You take all of these things sequentially and what you get is a situation where on the eve of COVID, the US was trading more with Canada and more with Mexico each than it was with China, reversing a decade or so of displacement by China of those others. I call that scenario continental drift. And you better believe that COVID is accelerating continental drift because we've seen what happens as supply chains get disrupted on that transoceanic scale and how much better off we'd be, how much more resilient we'd be if we had more domestic uh, production. And that is why at the height of COVID, in the midst of all of this, again, protectionism, xenophobia, self-centeredness, just trying to survive, the three, three of the most significant measures ever undertaken at regional fiscal and trade consolidation took place, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the European rescue package right? Uh, a $750 billion combined Eurozone budget. And again, industrial policy backing um, greater regional integration. The Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership in Asia, the largest trade agreement in the history of the world in any one region. And of course, the USMCA, US-Mexico-Canada, right? Signed um, last spring. Are you kidding me? Right? People are not noticing this. Three biggest regional steps, integration steps pretty much ever were taken during COVID. Is that an accident? That's no accident. That's no accident. It's because of COVID, right? It's because of this recognition that we need to be more self-sufficient. We need to turn to our neighbors in times of crisis when you can't depend on global supply chains. So the world is irrevocably moving in a regional direction. And that's a wonderful thing. It doesn't mean the end of globalization at all. We're still competing to, again, outsource to Southeast Asia, right? To access and sell in those markets. Your own clients are expanding their footprint there because those countries are part of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. So I foresee regionalism and globalism coexisting. The word that keeps coming back during this conversation about maybe the primary motivation or or a primary motivation behind regionalism is resilience. And resilience, uh, I will give credit to one of our clients. So I would say every client that was in that room has an ESG guide. One of my clients, a terrific company called Invesco, has changed their guide. It says ESG plus R. They actually have the resilience in there. And then several of our clients are enormous firms that also own insurance companies as part of their real estate umbrella. And they're now using these insurance companies to underwrite what is the real economic risk of these areas. So let me ask you a general question because this is a real estate audience. Should you start to put in a resilience discount into buildings that may be in environmentally questionable areas. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that that should be quantified relentlessly and the likely depreciation of those assets can be modeled very well and therefore you can constantly run this exercise of you know ranking the likely performance under different climate scenarios or demographic scenarios and starting to divest uh, from what are going to be underperforming assets. And again, if everyone does that, the data will nudge us 
in the right directions of geographical adaptation. I'm not a passive observer in this. Uh, you know, I'm actively involved in this with all of our clients, and I think that's exactly what we should be doing. And again, we are in a free market. We celebrate that, right? People, you can go and invest and live and build your offices, your homes, wherever you want, more or less. But when it comes time to answer the question, who's left holding the bag, right? And if you are the, the occupier, the builder, whatever the case may be, you want to be careful about where you locate um, your long-term investment. So yes, I, I think that you should have a, you know, a resilience uh, officer, if you will, and that resilience officer needs to be armed with models around uh, the geographical resilience capability of each county in America and um, you know, put a price on that. Well, putting aside people's beach houses on the water, uh, this is not residential real estate. This is commercial. Yeah. And I'm just going to be straight up with you. The hottest markets for real estate investment in the country right now are places that include Austin, Texas, Dallas, Florida, Miami, Phoenix, where we're sitting right now. And yes, even though California has faced terrible risks due to forest fires and other types of fires, Northern California... Uh, Los Angeles, which is also at risk uh, to fires, two of the hottest real estate markets in America. Um, what do you say to those Miami investors? Miami and Phoenix. Yeah, absolutely. I don't. I I say follow the data because if people are moving to those places and if there's growth in the office and retail sectors as a result of the influx of people there. Take advantage of it. If you see the cap ratio, you know, uh, accelerating, coming down, obviously you want to take advantage of that. So I'm not saying uh, sell every place now that will eventually be climate stressed. I'm saying model the time horizon at which it's no longer profitable to be in that place. That's, again, precisely what we do uh, for our clients. That's what you should do. So take advantage of it now. But resilience is also about knowing when to exit, Right. Pursuing the profit motive, there's nothing wrong with that. And saying, hey, if Miami is going to be hot for the next, uh, you know, four or five, whatever years, I'm not going to miss out on that opportunity. But don't be the last one holding the bag, right? Constantly check your models and see. Uh, And also, what I'm also interested in in terms of geographical asset allocation or what places are underpriced right now. The whole world is not moving to Phoenix and Miami. Right. If you if that were true, then you'd be missing out on the story of, you know, Boise and Nashville and uh, also obviously Austin and Portland and uh, Atlanta and Raleigh and on and on and on. And it goes right. I get asked all the time. Let me put it this way. I get asked all the time. What's the next tier one? Right. And the problem with a lot of our existing real estate economic models is that they're totally endogenous. You know what you know about the cities that you track and you can make an accurate prediction if nothing were happening outside of that data. If climate weren't a factor, if demographics weren't a factor, if there weren't significant changes in you know, cost of living and other sorts of things. But that's not the way the real world works. So you need to make your models more complex so that you can start to get a better and preemptive, you know, get an early read on what places are genuinely coming up in a structural way, not just as a flash in the pan, but because they are actually uh, resilient. I uh, just got back from the Midwest. My son is looking at several uh, wonderful colleges up there for school, and uh, it's hard to get around the Midwest because they've got these bodies of water, uh, the Great Lakes, uh, that are, <laughs> it takes a long time to drive around them. Uh, the same thing that uh, was sitting in uh, hiding in plain sight. Uh, is that their greatest strength in the future? 
I'm pretty bullish on uh, the Great Lakes. You probably saw that on you know very very early in the book uh, where I did a scenario planning exercise in the early 2010s globally, looking at places that kind of passed through the filters of climate risk, political risk, economic risk, and opportunity, and kind of scoring the regions of the world. And we realized, oh my goodness, the Great Lakes looks pretty damn good in the year 2050. The irony being, of course, that Michigan, to take that example, is still depopulating. It's still losing people right now, even though with a 100% money-back guarantee, it's going to be a great place to be on a relative basis as climate change accelerates. Again, People make their own decisions. They vote with their own feet. Investment follows those people. And until, but at some point, people may realize that instead of leaving the Northeast and the northern part of the United States for the South and the West, maybe they'll be nudged right to go back by climate change or other factors. The smart money would say, hmm, where do I buy now because it's going to appreciate later? And again, I am seeing that happen. There are so many players in the market in the U.S., and I'm saying that we have better data science than ever before in a holistic way that I certainly put to my disposal to try and map out what places I think are going to be the winners across the political, economic, commercial, demographic, and environmental parameters. Well, I think that's a great way to end the show. We have the data available now. And we should use it. So on behalf of the Weekly Take, it was my pleasure to have Dr. Parag Khanna back here in Phoenix with us again at CBRE for one of our events. What a terrific job today, uh, Parag. And Parag is the leader of the Future Map, a consulting agency in Singapore. He's just written his seventh book called Move, The Forces Uprooting Us. Uh, What a terrific guest. Thank you very much, Parag. Thank you so much, Spencer. It was a pleasure. If you enjoyed hearing from Parag on the show, check out our website to learn more. That's cbre.com slash theweeklytake. You can share the show and also listen for Parag's ideas informing our conversations with other influential thought leaders. Look for the Weekly Take archives on the podcast platform of your choice. As always, we encourage you to send us feedback and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. Thanks again for joining us. We'll be back next week. For now, I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well.